That was ominous. It's really ominous. <laughs> I got goosebumps. N- not of the good kind. Not of the good kind. Could you imagine? Like, that would be one of the great lost goosebump books. You know, R.L. Stein presents the end of the fucking world. <laughs> <laughs> That's intense. I don't. Uh... Yeah. You know, the, Jimmy gets radiation poisoning and the kid's got to find out why. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot for an intro, Bob. Do you, that, that's uh, a very, very heavy intro. We should probably get past the uh, the ominous prattle. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Welcome to the uh, flagship episode, the maiden voyage. The first one. Yeah, of uh, 14 months apart. I am your host, Bob Barrow. And I am your co-host, Jacqueline Barrow. Ooh, hey. That was better, right? Yeah, we got through it. This is uh, good. <laughs> this might be a second take. Who knows? But we want to thank you guys very much for joining us. Uh, hopefully, someone is joining us. Well, I guess it's more important if they join us again. Yes, you know, if you come back, say, and listen to this again, and go, "Oh, they did." Wait, this episode fucking sucked compared yeah. to the second episode. Why did they? Should have just deleted this. Well, one. then that's okay because that meant they are like repeat customers. Yeah, that's good. I can handle that. Okay. But what we're going to be doing here uh, with 14 Months Apart is Jack and I uh, come from, obviously, we're, we're siblings. That might not be obvious. We probably should let you know. Read the social media, guys. And we are 14 Months Apart, well, literally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting to say that. <laughs> literally. 14 Months Apart. Come on, Mom and Dad. Like, let, let the stitches heal, guys. Like, <laughs> calm down. Just a smidgen. But being so close in age, uh, I think we're just outside of the concept of Irish twins, but close enough. We came from, obviously, the the same media environment growing up. Absolutely. We watched the same TV, the same movies. Music, same. Books. Yeah. Pretty similar. It's very, unless you come from some weird environment where your parents are doing like creepy experiments on you were like, we're only going to give this one Raul Dahl, and this one's reading fucking Moby Dick every night. That's it. We came from the same exposure. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a good joke for this episode? That's good. Like radiation? Yes, we were exposed okay. to the same content. Uh, we were not vaccinated against uh, different things. But as time's gone by, we've we've diverged in a lot of very startling ways. Uh, in terms, in terms of, of our, media. Yes, in terms of our media consumption. We're both writers, and we've turned into two very different writers. Who both love the same things to a point. Yeah. And who both hate very different things yeah. that the other person loves and... And vice versa. You know, yeah, you get yeah. what I'm throwing down. <laughs> but what we've what we wanted to kind of look at, and something we've talked about in, in our own conversations is, how the fuck did that happen? Like, how did we come from such a similar environment and really settle on completely different tastes in film, book, uh, music? And writing style. TV, and, and the writing style difference is, is pretty huge. Yeah. So we got to think, it's like, well, fuck, why don't we, why don't we do a podcast about it? Because no one's doing podcasts these days. No, it's so, a, such a new field. Like yeah. I, um, It's a dead form. So we're I think hoping we could really it revive it. Yeah, <laughs> we could revive it. We could bring it back to life. Yeah. So that's that's really what we're going to be doing here in this uh, this journey. We hope you guys are going to take with us is to to look at uh, certain books, certain movies, certain TV shows, uh, some that we shared as kids and both still love, some that are new to me, some that are new to Jack, some that we both know but absolutely fucking despise, yeah. and figure out how the hell did this happened. How with just fourteen months apart did we end up? 
not just different people, but such different media consumers and writers. We're so close, yet so far apart. Oh. Oh. Yeah, that was a good one. Someone should, like, <laughs> fart out some white doves or something. <laughs> uh, in case you haven't noticed by now, uh, this won't be a, uh, a safe-for-work show. So, again, you should have noticed the little uh, not E for everyone sign. Put the kids to bed. On, uh, on iTunes. Put your headphones in. Yeah. And get ready to have your ass blown out your butt. Right? I'm not going to say those things. <laughs> that's on Bob. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be uh, my job, similar to another show of mine you might have heard. But uh, before we get into the uh, meat and potatoes this episode, uh, Jack, why don't you introduce yourself to our uh, massive fan base? Sure. Um, so, like I said, my name's Jacqueline. Um, I'm a writer. I'm a teacher. I'm a mom. Um, I teach at Fleming College in Peterborough. I'm working on a novel, um, some children's books. I've dabbled in theater and screenwriting. I'd say more than dabbled. Jack is a bit of a, uh, a bit of a child prodigy when it came to uh, <laughs> local theater. What? Well, everyone was a child prodigy <laughs> that was a child prodigy. So yeah, no, I started uh, my writing career uh, with screenwriting and plays and things like that, and kind of branched out from there, but. That's really me in a nutshell. I teach communications and anthropology, um, all of those really interesting human-y things. <laughs> Jack has all the degrees. There's not just one or two. She has how many degrees in total do you have? I have three, and then I'm going to be working on a fourth this y- fall. Yes, you just. This is recent news. You just recent got news. Uh, a student um, acceptance letter. Going to be um, attending Queens online part time to do my. Masters of Education um, with an Indigenous focus, so that'll be super fun while working, while raising two kids. And while now doing the show. And doing the show. Yeah. And writing my book. Yeah. And the the play that we're working on, so it's going to be a yes. very busy forever. But that's okay. Yeah. Busy is good. No, busy is good. Okay, Bob, now. Well, yes, well. Um, you. Yeah. <laughs> me. Shit. Uh, no, I, uh, I am... I'm no one. No. Uh, some of you uh, might recognize my voice from a show that I had, uh, that I did uh, with a friend, Ariel Fisher, on uh, the Modern Superior Network called 14 Months Apart. 14 Months Apart. <laughs> I was waiting. Oh. I was waiting. I was like, when I do the intro, am I going to say Frame Apart? But no, I got through it. Uh, that I did called A Frame Apart. Uh, that show is still available on the Modern Superior Network, so Super check it awesome. out. Super awesome. Check it out. Yeah. I also guessed it a few times on uh, the matinee cast uh, that Ryan McNeil, McNeil did, so you might know my voice from there. I am a, uh, a novelist, a writer, a screenwriter. You can find my work at the stealmynamelibrary.com slash WordPress slash something. I'll get the proper... We'll get it up there on all we'll the social media outlets. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's kind of me. Hopefully, if... If we're getting some uh, listeners over from a frame apart, hopefully you guys will enjoy this this new thing that I'm doing. As, as Jack said, the the swearing and horseshittery is going to be a little. It's going to be pretty similar for me. But enough of, of all that jazz. Yeah, we're boring. As Rob Schneider, Roy Schneider said, Rob Schneider. Yes, he played Bob Fosse and all that jazz. So when it came time to uh, to pick what we were going to do for this, we made a big long list of stuff. But we revised that big long list of stuff. <laughs> a couple of times. But one specifically, uh, one book kind of rose to the top where it's if we're going to get to the real roots of us as writers, 
especially. We have to kind of start somewhere. So, Jack, where the hell are we starting this week? We are starting with one of the penultimate novels that shaped <laughs> my, um, I guess, viewpoint of amazing, exciting literature. And that is The Girl Who Owned a City, written in 1975 by Mr. O.T. Nelson. <laughs> Yeah, so well let let's let's do the good stuff first. Okay. Cuz this this was a little more complicated and strange than I think we were expecting it to be for this. Yeah. So Jack, tell us the story of how the hell a girl who owned a city came into our lives. So when I was in grade 4, um attending Autonomy Valley Public School in Peterborough. Air. Give it up for OV. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um we had a teacher uh, Mrs. Susan March, shout out. Uh, yes, if Ms. you're March. listening, um, who brought this book in, uh, The Girl Who Owned a City, and started reading it to us as a class. And I think for a lot of it, it went over a lot of people's heads. Um, I, yes, it went over my head in terms of what it was really about. There's some political subtext there. Uh, no, there's some just political. There is political yeah. subtext. and But that didn't um, really resonate with those nine-year-old brains. But what did resonate was this end-of-the-world post-apocalyptic environment that I have clung to so aggressively my entire life. And my first novel, um, which isn't finished yet, uh, is in that kind of vein in that world of a dystopian social breakdown kind of thing. So it's something that has stood out for me for a long time. Well, I think it's you, you put it pretty succinctly when we were reading it. Uh, that I believe your your words were, this is the world from which all of my stories have sprung. Yeah. This is the wellspring that, yeah. that started it. You're not obviously plagiarizing or anything, but no. it is, that's the spark. I, I just have this love of uh, post-apocalyptic survival stories um, and Neanderthals, but we'll get into that in a later episode. Yeah, we'll talk about I have really, later. I like really weird things. Yeah. No, but this particular book, uh, the premise of it is that there's a virus that sweeps through the, I'm assuming the the world. There's really insinuation it. that it's it's assumingly everywhere, or you can assume it's everywhere. Um, it, I mean, it's based in Chicago, um, but everyone over the age of 12 mysteriously dies. Yes, they just <laughs> die. That is the... Uh, there is no reason for it. There is no explanation given for it, but um, it's not about the virus itself. It's about the aftermath and yeah. how the children um, start to rebuild some form of society and living and yeah and it the story I, I think one of the major things that that hooked us as kids is the story focuses on a, a sister and her little brother and it is was target marketed to us yeah. uh, we used to Jack used to borrow the book constantly we would build a bedsheet fort yep and we would sit in it for hours, hours. we'd read it in one go I don't or maybe like two like we'd have to go yeah. to bed and then pick it up in the morning but um, we always read it out loud uh, which it will go. We have to say that we read it out loud this time. Yes, that's one of the big things that I think actually you brought up. I said, "Let's do a girl who in the city," and you're like, "We have to read it out loud." Yeah, we have to kind of. We didn't build a bedsheet for it, no. But we uh, we read it out loud, and I remember we did this over and over and over again. And the copy of the book that we read this time that we still have. Is the copy. Yeah, it's the actual copy. Yes, uh, that if I'm not mistaken... I might have stolen it. Yeah, sorry to uh, to Miss March, because we, <laughs> me and Jack had some conflicting stories on this, which I think is is another funny thing that we'll tackle on the show, is the that we kind of joke about all the time, where I'll tell a story and Jack's like, 
were you fucking no, even there? Not. You weren't there. Like, what were you That's doing? what happened. Yeah. Uh, where I, I remember we were in the teacher's lounge at Otonomy Valley. So, but, and I don't know what it's like now because kids do whatever the hell they want. But being in the teacher's lounge when we were kids, that was, was a, a big deal. Yeah. And brown nosy Magoo here <laughs> was washing dishes for them. $3 a week, child labor. You would have done it for free. I know I would have done you it for suck free. suck up. But my friend Elizabeth Law and I were washing dishes. And let me tell you, those teachers were not neat in any way. <laughs> I cleaned up a lot of stuff out of the microwave. And I think at that time, microwaves were fairly new, too, <laughs> on mass. <laughs> it was a very... Not this is like, like early 90s. We're talking early 90s. Yeah, like 92, 93, yeah. something like that. So we've had this book and we've read the shit out of it. And I, I had mentioned how it we really were target market, right down to the fact that they even bring up in the book the date November 20th. And like that's my that's birthday. That's your birthday. Like, and it was the, the older sister is so strong-willed and she's taking control of this situation. And it's like, no, fuck it. We're not going to die. I'm not going to let my little brother <laughs> die. not at all. And that was so jacked. And she was 10 and I was 9, when nine or 10 when we were reading it. Yeah. Um, I think Todd was a little bit younger. I Todd's was five, five or, six or six in the book. So not quite the same age gap, but we still had that I'm in control yeah. and I'm going to look after you, which is what it was like when we were kids. Yeah. So the, the story follows these kids in the aftermath of this plague. And as she's trying to, as you said, put together some semblance of society, they try and fortify their street and it doesn't work. Gangs are forming around them. Things are getting violent quite gangs. violent. For everyone under the age of 12. But I guess, I mean, in that situation, yeah, that's what you do. And spoilers, like the book's been out since 1975. Yeah, if you haven't read it now. Yeah, we can't we can't help you. But the the city in question is Lisa, the main character, comes up with this brilliant idea that they're going to fortify the old high school. Yeah, and which you you have to think back to kind of a pre zombie apocalypse explosion yeah. days where you you didn't have this. It, especially for young kids. There no, there's no Walking Dead with the prison fortification. Yeah. There's no Dawn of the Dead. Well, no, there, the there, there is. The The original Dawn of the Dead was in... Technically, he wrote this before Dawn of the Dead. But we wouldn't have been exposed to not, anything like no, that. No, not We kids. sure as hell didn't see Dawn. I didn't see Dawn of the Dead when I was nine. So that came came a little later. So the whole story and of finding supplies and guns and learning to drive was so romantic. Yeah. And we were very dramatic children. Oh my God, were we ever. Like, grab onto whatever you can and obsess about it for years yeah. and years and years until it slowly fades out and you forget about it. Forget about it for a bit, but then you catch that right mood, right moment, and you just get this, fuck, I need to read a girl on the study right yeah. now. Or I need to watch a Polly Shore movie because... Yeah. Just because. You'll, yeah. you'll find that out about us as uh, these podcasts go on. Um, our strange obsessions, our Polly Shore love, love yeah. of Polly Shore. Yes. Our, we haven't actually, we haven't loved Polly Shore in, in a biblical sense. <laughs> no. But at least not since he cut his hair. I, I can't get behind that. But but the story itself, this, this adventure, this excitement, it is something that not just in Jack's work, um, I've written about the end of the world. Yeah. I've written so much about siblings and very intense friendships. I'm not a big romantic writer. I focus very much on siblings and friends. Well, there's this idea of surviving together, whether you're surviving childhood, whether you're surviving yeah. a virus that sweeps mm. the earth. 
Um, I mean, I was, even became so obsessed with it after reading it in grade four that in grade five, I convinced my teacher, Mrs. Gladkey, to read it to the class. And I think when I got about partway through, um, she realized the social propaganda that was in the book, um, and she quickly cut it off. Yeah. And I never finished it. And I think after that, that's when I took it, I stole it, or it was in a bin of books in the staff lounge um, and took it from there. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what kind of brings us to to this the the funny part of getting ready for this show is Jack you hadn't read the book in a while. Oh yeah, it had been, I think my gosh, I probably would have read it 20 years ago at least. So I read it I think 2 or 3 years ago. I just zipped it out uh, in transit one day. And I have such a perfect memory of this book. But it, it's not just the book, it's our interpretation yeah. of it, you know. Yeah. It's our it's, memory is but it's very different from what it actually That was it, the that's <laughs> the shittiest thing about this. Is whereas this, you know, almost Norman Rockwell perfection of a memory of our experience with this book, this was more like a kick in the face with a golf shoe going through it yeah, this time. Yeah, it was, it was disappointing. I mean, I don't, I started somewhere, I've got on a computer where I started writing the script to it. And even when I was writing it at 16, 17, I wasn't getting what was really in there until you stand back with more life under your belt Yeah, and go, like, how many times do we put the book down and go, did that just happen? Did he just write that? Lots and lots. So the, something I found out a couple years ago after I'd reread it, cause I remember finishing it going, Something's not right. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of things that ain't right with that so, book. Something's a little fucky here. And did some research, and it turns out O.T. Uh, Mr. O.T. O. Nelson was a dev- uh, devout, devout acolyte of uh, Ayn Rand. Ugh. And a uh, vehement libertarian. And oh. he realized that he couldn't give his kids the fountainhead and stuff to read. So he was going to write a book that explained uh, not just libertarian views, but why they were the greatest thing ever, and anyone that doesn't ascribe to them is a fucking moron. So, Which is usually how political zealots work. Bob, do you want to explain to us what libertarianism is? So li- libertarianism, in a nutshell, uh, is there, there are some wonderful libertarians out there. Penn and Teller are libertarians. But what it comes down to is minimal government, uh, self-sustaining. You Ruled don't, by, like, one. Yes. Yeah. It, it's the, yes, I think the rule of one is the best way to put it, is you don't fucking come near me, and I'm not going to go near you. Uh, it, it's a very kind of anti-communism, anti-socialism. Yeah, and very, like, almost capitalistic in nature, but it's it's more, it's less about earning the most money and more about just earning what you have. Yes. And there there are there are parts of, of that, uh, of, of libertarianism that, that are quite sensible uh, to a point. But for, at least in my experience, my reading in the subject is it's really easy to be a libertarian if you're rich because then you don't require anything it's easy from to do the lots system. of things if you're rich yeah. that's i find that's usually where that kind of group lies is if you have a shitload of money and you can get people to do stuff for you because you have money then you you don't need public health care you yeah. don't need uh, any social services of and any you don't kind. you shouldn't be expected to share what you have no including title goods anything you it's all about earning and this this 
is woven through the book so strongly. You need to earn it. You need to earn your happiness. You need to earn your food. Earn your spot in the group. Yeah. Because the char- the main character of Lisa, who we, we worshipped as, as kids, is one of the, the early examples of a... Uh, I, I hate this term because it's bandied about now so much, but the, the strong female character. Yeah. Uh, that's very important, but is kind of been beaten into the ground and the phrase has lost a bit of meaning right now. But she was one of those early examples. You know, we had Super Andrew and Gables on one hand for us as, as kids. And then Lisa, who was like, fuck it, get the guns. Start well, the car, yeah. Toddy, we're going. <laughs> and this is almost like you'd expect it to be at the time of the Hunger Games, when you've got people like Katniss who are just go-getter girls, there's no emotion, there's no romance involved. I mean, there is kind of a pseudo-romance in Hunger Games, but there isn't anything in The Girl Who Owned a City, and I remember reading it thinking, well, why doesn't she kiss Craig? Oh, she wants to bone Craig so bad. No, don't say that. She's dead. (laughs) Craig's got none of it. No, but there wasn't any of that woven through it, which is really cutting edge, I think, in the 70s. Why, like, he could have made Todd or Craig the main character. and Well, I, I honestly feel coming back through it this time that O.T. Nelson was so fucking disconnected from reality that it wouldn't even occur to him to put in a romance subplot. Because he was writing yeah. this for his children. Uh, yeah, I guess right? it was propaganda and like, but as if that wouldn't happen. You've got 10, 11, 12 year olds running around like, I had a boyfriend when I was 11. Yeah. So all I was thinking about while I was reading this was, well, who's she going to get with? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who's going to be her boyfriend? Maybe Craig or Steve, Charlie. Um, <laughs> Maybe she's going to be Tom Logan. But it, <laughs> she <laughs> can knows? fix him. <laughs> I can fix him. Tom Logan is the leader of the uh, the rival gang. He's the protagonist, which yeah, is probably antagonist. who I would have went for because you anti- know me and fixing people. <laughs> He's the antagonist. Oh, sorry. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> Tom, Log- Tom Logan's actually the hero of this book. I got wrapped up in the romance of it all, and I forgot my literary terms. <laughs> Lisa's just a bitch. So embarrassing. But it's it's funny that, because we kept also noticing lines where Lisa is so strong and such a strong female character. And, and again, if you find yourself completely lost, because we're talking, that's kind of winking out characters like you might know them. We, yeah. We can't really help you right now, but you can feel free, order the book, pause this, and come back to it. Yeah, come back to it later. But she's so strong, but then that 70s mindset keeps rearing out where she's just out kicking ass all by herself and then says things like, it would be nice to have a man along. Yeah, so she brings the boys or she makes some of the other female characters in charge of... Once she takes over the city or the school and starts to build her own city. Yeah, she delegates jobs and all of the the female characters have jobs like they're cooking and they're cleaning they're and teachers they're the nurse. and nurses and yeah. Um which and is the men are in charge of war and you know, I guess well maybe the boy might like to teach. Only Craig, because he's a farmer. Yeah, what's with that about farming too? There's another character of Craig who actually is really redeemable, and all he wants to do is little ten-year-old brain, he wants to start up the farm. Swift Roads, Six Roads, something like No, Six Roads isn't keen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. It, it's so it, it's a farm they find at the start of with the With a whole bunch of dead cows and Yeah. But uh, there's cookies. There's cookies. <laughs> That's all that matters. I mean but I mean, back to the ominous part of this, because the point of the dead cows just kind of hit me. Um, as lightly as we can joke about it now, this whole book is really ominous. Yeah, it was it was heavy, heavy business as kids to, to deal with loss of a parent and the idea that you don't get to mourn. 
Like you can't no. stop and take a take a week off because it's not just your parents; it's everybody's parents, every adult in the yeah. world, everyone over twelve is gone. And like, think about how many really go-getter 11-year-olds you knew when you were a kid that would have been like, mom and dad are dead. Well, got shit to do. Got laundry on. Can't Let's sit around here. Chickens. Yep. Can't sit around here and piss and moan all day. We got stuff to do. No, like, and that nobody. was quite shocking because, I mean, the timeline of the book it is confusing at best, um, but it had only been two weeks since <laughs> the death of the entire adult world. <laughs> confusing at best is is a very good way to put it. Spongy. Uh, and on drugs might be a slightly more accurate. Yeah, there was a couple times, I think, more than a couple times we looked at each other going, but it's November, and this all happened November 20th, and now it's December, and there's no snow. No, because it doesn't snow in in, uh, Illinois. Ever. (laughs) Ever. Yeah, it's a completely, it's a very mild winter. I don't know. I watched Shameless, and they must have lied. They just must have lied to us, because (laughs) it seemed very cold. Well, because the book starts with Lisa going to the farm, and she's like, just last week, this time last week, I was sitting in social studies. (laughs) What? How fast was this virus that it just cooked all the parents in a day? And where, where are the bodies? Yeah. (laughs) There's, there's no bodies. Larry's motorcycle is still out on the yard. (laughs) Larry. (laughs) Larry. One of the neighbors leaves a motorcycle out on the yard god knows why and it's never even mentioned again but lisa when she starts to learn how to drive drives her father's car over top of larry's motorcycle but where is larry where are the bodies that's that's kind of the conundrum here is it's it's i don't think i don't think ironic's right because Atlanta's marisette isn't helpful (laughs) but it's i guess you could say that it is does it count as irony that we both became writers and this book is almost patient zero pun intended of what made us want to write but it it sucks so bad on it from a technical level technically yeah i mean it's it's really poorly written there are uh errors grammatical and spelling errors in the book yeah um there's some timeline issues it's almost like this was a first draft and he was just like Fuck it. Publish it. Fuck it. Pick them up. Pick them up. Let's get this shit out to the kids. We got work to do. Which is interesting because as much as I know myself as an author, I, um, or a writer, um, I'm not yet an author. Um, I obsess about those little technical details and does the sentence sound right and is the structure right? And, um, in the end of the day, is it about the structure or is it about the story that you're telling? Depending on the audience. Yeah, because, well, for OT, obviously, that was not a concern that he had <laughs> no, at all. He, he had a care. typewriter and a vision, and he just went. And it's, I've, I've, can't, I can't tell you, I think maybe it was in On Writing, where Stephen King is talking about, you know, being a writer and get your shit together, technically. And he mentions that very few times will an editor say no to an incredible story if there's uh, structural and technical problems. They can work with that. He said, but at the same time, that usually doesn't happen. Because if somebody has such an excellent grasp on story, that means they have to use the technique to make that story True. Although I've read some pretty shitty books in my time. Yeah. So, but it's it's funny because it's so separate. It's yeah. almost like there's three things going on here. You have his bad writing style, yeah. mixed with this almost disgusting level of propaganda. 
But then if you kind of shook the book out, yeah. <laughs> like Winnie the Pooh style, when the narrator shakes Tigger out yeah. of the tree. Just shake Lisa right out yeah. of there, because she's really pissing me off. <laughs> if you shook the core story of all the adults are dead and the kids have to survive, you are left with a fucking amazing little story in yeah. that part. Yeah. Even the fact like it's a kid's book, so you can only expect so much in quotes, <laughs> but that part of it is is so wonderful. Wait, somebody decided that this was a good storyline for children? <laughs> well, kids were tougher back then. You know, it's, it's where, what are we going to do for defense? Go to the police station and get guns! The Barrow children didn't get nightmares from this. We got inspiration. Yeah, it like... <laughs> but it, it's, it is funny to, to see how terrible it is because it's... We, I think we can both say, uh, without any subterfuge, that this was probably our first favorite book. Yes. It's... Well, and I, at one point, I almost considered getting a, ta- a quote of a tat... Or a tattoo of a quote from the book. Oh, Jesus. And now, reading it now, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, thank God I didn't do that. Because forget all the technical stuff, forget all the timeline shit um, that's wrong. It's the propaganda that yeah. maybe we should talk about. Because there's... The last half of the book specifically is just filled. Like the front half is layered with um, what you're doing. You're building the city. You're fortifying your house. You're gathering supplies. You're finding a warehouse. You're learning to drive. All that really cool stuff. Yeah, all the fun stuff. Yeah. So they like lure you in kind of like a witch with candy. (laughs) (laughs) And then they hit you over the head. Because that's really what it is. is it, It starts off and the... Lisa, the main character, Lisa and her brother Toddy, Lisa's whole trip is, her survival trip that she's on is kind of convincing herself that I have to find a positive in this. Yeah. And it's... And spin it positively for her five-year-old brother. Yes. And that's... Because he's doing libertarian stuff and he's using a lot of uh, objectivism as well. And at the beginning, he does that very well because Lisa is struggling. With what do I do? When did and kind of realizes well, I always felt good when I was doing something, mm-hmm. and if I can figure, if I can do something, then I'll feel like I'm okay. Yeah, and, like idle hands. Yeah, and that's totally sensible. Yeah, it makes sense. And she starts doing stuff and realizing, fuck, why? Why isn't everyone figuring this out? Like we're we're happy and we're fed and we're we're not sick and tired and looking at her friends who are, these kids are dying. They're dying, yeah. One of them can't even get out of bed. Yeah, uh, she's so sick. She goes next door because they're starving to death, which is also ominous and horrible. But I think she gets power hungry. Well, it it starts to escalate. Instead of leaving the political message as a subtext, and I think if he had left it there with just Lisa's kind of, she could have a drive of, I have to do this or no one else will, so I'm going to yeah. take joy from it. And that's cool. And I think that actually might have been more impactful But that's for not kids. where he went with it. Where he went with it was, I have to do this because I want to earn this and it's going to be my city. It's, it's mine. Everyone else is foolish. And he also starts getting into just really bad stretches of repetition. Yeah, and the last a third of the book... Um, the is, third section is just so repetitive. It's like Lisa's on drugs or she's in some kind of... Well, she gets of, very manic. And I yeah. think you can you can tell that it feels like he was very manic at the end. Because yeah. sometimes you can read the ending of a writer's book and you can tell that they're just... Rushing to get it finished by like, the deadline. Oh or, my fucking God, I've got to hit this word counter. Or they're just so fired up about their story that it just becomes a, a wild ride. 
But he starts littering in this propaganda with these bedtime stories that he's she her she's telling to Toddy, her little brother, Toddy boy. And that's where we kind of started noticing this trouble that it's like, okay, it's it's a parable. Yeah. You know, it's she's trying to convince her five-year-old brother whose parents are dead that if he doesn't get on board with survival, they're toast. They're going to die. Which is an interesting way. And if he sprinkled in that libertarianism through these stories, then it would have been okay. Yeah. And instead, it it unfortunately gets so out of control. It's hard for us to judge because it's obviously, it's exactly what he wanted to accomplish. He, and he wrote did. the book with a singular vision. Explain to my kids and other kids the extreme benefits of this system of ideology. Let, let me just read you a quote here that I picked out where her friend Jill calls her selfish because Lisa doesn't believe in sharing the wealth. No. She believes that everybody should earn the wealth they have. So it starts with noticing the kids at Jill's house, she takes in all these orphans, that they are having trouble sharing their toys. So Lisa says, well, why don't we just give everyone a toy? But before we give them a toy, they have to earn it. And it's their toy. They don't have to share with anybody. It's all to themselves. And Jill kind of counters this idea and says, well, that- this is this is page 133 if you want to read along at home. Sure. Yeah. And then Jill argues with her and says, no, like, we need to share. We need to be in this together. And Lisa counters that with, I would start to imagine what would happen to Glenbard if more than one person was in charge. If the city belonged to no one in particular, we'd form a group that would vote on things. And that would be bad. Bad? How so, Lisa? Voting is a good thing. It's fair if everyone has a chance to help decide important things. You have some strange ideas. Lisa ignored the insult. Do you think it would be fair for the group to decide that all the supplies I found were suddenly community property, and I don't have the right to decide how they should be used? And it goes on from there. That's the biggest problem is you you obviously need to take into account that, yeah, she did this work, but... If you decide that you're going to share it with everybody, then that's a decision you've made. You're sharing or you're just lording it over people. And that's really what Lisa starts doing. And I I guess in one hand, it's complicated because they're now in such a extreme situation that you can't. You can't just kind of approach it willy-nilly, but at the same time, no. it's a kid's book, and he gets so fucking militant. It's a kid's book, but they're views. pouring hot, boiling oil and throwing <laughs> Molotov cocktails and at shooting their people and, and shooting people. And doing surgery. Surgery. Lisa gets shot. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't Spoiler like alert. Um, and drinks after. Like, it's just... It, and those are the things I think that we clung to. We didn't actually hear the rhetoric that was being poured in behind, but as an adult now... Yeah. Well, we don't. We didn't hear all that shit. We heard the story. We heard the references to Girl Scouts and Kool Aid and Christmas candles. Yeah, and it was so grounded in not just the real world, but our world. Yeah, like it was Denny Crescent, man. Yeah, like this it, is way before technology. Well, we had technology, but not in the the social media world that kids are growing up in now. This was something that resonated with us. Still to this day, um, popcorn and Kool Aid has a special meaning for you and I. I called call you Toddy Boy. Well, we we That's sign my our, nickname for you for special occasion cards like Jack's birthday or Christmas. We'll sign the cards, Lisa Toddy Boy. Yeah, and it's it's gonna be tough. When your birthday comes around in September, so <laughs> I'm so used to just writing to lease. Yeah. Where it's like, 
fuck, I don't want to say Lisa, bitch. To Jill. Yeah. Jill had her shit together. (laughs) She wanted to be a nurse. But, you know, and I think this is why this book is so fitting for our first episode is that when we talk about being 14 months apart, but we're really miles apart in terms of our tastes, this book is so far away from our fundamental values and morals as (laughs) as people who believe in sharing and socialism and all of those good things. Yeah. um, That it still resonated with us and it still means something really yeah. important. And it did. And it, and it, I think what, it doesn't really matter now, the, the bullshit in it, because the book was a catalyst. Like I said, it was a match that kind of lit this fire under us that yeah. shot us forward into uh, an appreciation and love and mild obsession with apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic fiction, fiction, dystopian fiction. Uh, in high school, I did a whole unit on it. Uh, you know, incredible books like Fahrenheit 451, 1984, Not Wanted on the Voyage, things like that, that approach the subject matter in a much more intelligent way. Um, later on... Or a less biased way, maybe. Well, yes. In, 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 well, smarter, less biased, you're not... You, it's funny, 1984 is so insanely political, but it's talking about the dangers of hard-edged ideologies. And as me and Jack kind of diverge, because in in our relationship as brother and sister, this, when we were reading A Girl Who Owned a City, this was kind of the last time for a long time that we were really like a hard team. Yeah. Uh, You know, like your B team. And well, just, then you go through the teenage years and yeah, and we kind of started to split. Yeah, but, but we always came back together for this. Yes, that was the one thing we could bring us back. No matter how brutally we were fighting, we could still be like sixteen and like need a girl. But you know, during that time, I'm into horror. I'm also finding out things like Dawn of the Dead and Romero's uh, Dead trilogy. So. The the obsession with the end of the world never really went away, and it's it's super popular right now with stuff like with The Walking Dead, but it it always at least for me and this is I don't mean this in a in a, a love sense, but there's something very romantic about the end of the world. Oh yeah, especially when we were younger and reading these books, and also getting into high school and reading smarter books. Yeah, about the end the of the survival, world. The survival, like even books like The Hatchet or My Side of the Mountain, all mm-hmm. the, they're about surviving. You don't have your parents. You're independent. You have you have to figure out a way to get through this. Yeah, uh, whether it's zombies, whether it's a plane crash, whether whatever you want to call it. Um, those are the type of things that kind of drove this survival. Yes. It's so far away from the reality that we grew up in that well, it became romantic. Definitely. And I, and I also think, you know, that there was, there was a certain, like, I think every, every kid's upbringing has its tumultuous moments and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Barrow house could be, uh, super wonderful and alternately very tumultuous at times. So yeah. there, every, every kid has that kind of own survival aspect in their day to day. Yeah. And this this book for all of its faults and flaws of which there are many really was kind of like a rallying cry yeah. that we could sit around and go, "Okay, we're okay as long as we can if we can get to her city, we'll be we'll yeah. be all right." Well, and that's exactly it. we fortified 
that in a sense. We made a blanket fort. We yeah. sat underneath it with popcorn and Kool-Aid and our little lamp on, which is probably a really huge fire hazard because yeah. <laughs> it was Grand and Grandpa's and from like God knows when. Um, but that's what this book was to us. So, I mean, check it out um, if you can find a copy. There's also a really awesome... Should I say awesome? It's a cool graphic novel version of it as well. The graphic novel version is actually, I'm not bananas about the art style, but it's actually way better because it takes all of the political bullshit out out. and it just sticks with the core story. Um, There's also, I I don't know if there was, if this was any inspiration for her, but uh, Jovanka Vukovic, uh, formerly editor of Rue Morgue and now an excellent director in her own right, is got a movie coming out soon called Riot Girls, uh, which is about a plague that wipes out all the adults and the kids having to, well, teenagers having to kind of rally up and take care of business. So it's it's a very common story, but find it if you can. Yeah, um, give it a read. I mean, it's a short read. It's uh, how many pages? 189 pages. It's, but it's but kids' pages. Yeah, like these are baby. These are little baby pages. It's not 189 Stephen King pages no. or. You know, Herman Melville or something. It's an interesting perspective to look at this apocalyptic thing from the minds of libertarian children. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> before we leave and move on, I just, um, can I end with a quote? Yeah, end, end with the quote. Okay. Yeah, do it. Um, and I'm glad this was what I was considering to get for a tattoo. It's never going to happen now. Oh, God. Um, this is uh, the quote on part one of the book. So this is the first introduction that you have. And I, ha- I rewrote this. It was hanging in my bedroom wall all growing up because that's kind of kid I was. Animals maybe aren't so lucky. All they do is what they do, what their instincts tell them. They can't invent plans and make choices and dream about tomorrow. What? <laughs> <laughs> what? I know. <laughs> it seems so poignant. Unless like, you're like an elephant or a crow <laughs> or a dolphin or a parrot. Or, or an like, ape. Yeah, countless other animals that understand the passage of time. <laughs> OT, you're killing me. OT. So we wanted to, something we were going to be doing a lot on the show is not just, I'll pick a movie Jack doesn't like, she picks a movie I don't like, and then we, you know, butt heads about it. Coming into uh, themes and each bringing something to the table. So with this one, because A Girl Who Owned a City very much came from Jack, and it's something we found very young, I wanted to pair it with an end of the uh, a look at the end of the world that's something that is very me. So any Frame Apart listeners uh, will recognize this um, this movie. I've already discussed it once, but I think it's a movie that can be talked about endlessly. Uh, I had paired it uh, before with American History X. It was really? right. It was right after really? the Trump election, and right when he started uh, to really uh, okay. taunt uh, North Korea on Twitter, right, and basically calling you know. Picking, asking him to pick a world war with him. So yeah. at the time, Harold and I were like, oh, okay. I think we were already a bit of a, like, I don't want to say a bit. We were a political show. Yeah. Or we, we had a stance. But this time it's like, I think we need to take a really hard stance right now. Yes, yeah, so we did American History X and that because it was... Oh, I don't know if anyone really remembers how fucked up it was there for a minute. It's still fucked up, but you had... You mean America? Yeah, like the North Korea shit. Charlottesville. It was right around Charlottesville. So it's just, all yeah, this insane I just stopped stuff. listening to the news about it because it just gives me nightmares. So I, I've talked about it once before, but 
This was a movie that came to me uh, from my buddy Hayden, and he uh, called me up one day when I was still in Toronto, and he's like, dude, have you heard of a movie called Threads? No. He said, I just pulled up a list of like the most fucked up, depressing <laughs> movies ever made, and it's on there with like August Underground and Martyrs and shit. And oh, I'm like, wow. ooh, I'll be right down. <laughs> so we I walk down the street, we sit down to watch it, like crack a beer, we're getting ready to riff this, because... Hey, that's what we do. We riff anything. He found a tape, a home movie that someone had uploaded just to the internet. And half the tape was a Lions Club banquet that someone had shot on a handicam from like 1993. <laughs> what? And yo, yeah. Well, what nobody, no one famous, just somebody like you go to a banquet and you see somebody with a camcorder smiling. It was that. And the what? other half was someone's funeral. Oh my God. And we riffed the whole thing. So Hayden and I can riff anything. I don't even think we finished our beer. We stopped riffing about 15 minutes in and we're just like. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty intense. We were so bowled over. So we're talking about uh, Mick Jackson's 1984's Threats. This movie, just to give a bit of background, it was made by the BBC. It was a TV movie uh, right at the heart, height of the Cold War. Uh, there had been a, a slew of... Uh, Let's just terrify the nation. <laughs> yeah, well, war games had come out uh, the, day out, or the day after it had come out. Um, and nuclear war was really on people's minds. Because they're yeah. like, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen now. And this movie was is a part fictional story that follows a young woman uh, before and during and after uh, nuclear war mixed with a very hard documentary very ahead of its times faux documentary approach yeah so yeah because i mean i was surprised at the style that was in there i hate to like compare it to something like blair witch but if you were watching this or came upon it on tv you might go is this real well that's that's what happened is it was produced in conjunction with a documentary uh, that was talking like an actual news documentary. Okay. Um, talking about nuclear war and Cold War and talking about the movie you were about to see. Well, for a lot of people, it either didn't air or they didn't see it the first time. And when they aired it again, they didn't air it with the documentary. So people just went into this movie cold. Whoa. And Jack, I think you can attest, this is a movie that once it goes, it grabs you by the throat and doesn't stop. Yeah, and you know what? There is quite a slow build to it. Yeah. And Bob had hyped it up so much Unfortunately, I hyped um, that up a little too much. That I was like, he said, oh no, Logan, my oldest boy, he can't watch it. There's no way. It's just too intense. And it really was intense. It, it wasn't what I was expecting, and I think the anticipation of it made the build even more so. I'm just like, when is this going to happen? Drop the bombs. Just drop the bombs. <laughs> Please, dear God. Um, but it, it like it, there's so much in it to unpack. Like, Well, let's, let's start at the beginning, because the, the first 20 minutes of the movie follows this young couple, and she finds out she's pregnant. And they're talking about getting married, and the parents aren't really stoked, but they're like, fuck it, we do what we want. <laughs> we're very British. Like, super British. Oh, they come from two sides of the track. You've got the poor guy who's knocked up this girl, and then she's from a very wealthy family. So there's the awkward meeting of yeah. people, and the character development is brief at times, but you can tell it's really important. It's brief and very impactful because yeah. they come off as so casual, because these guys were all nobodies. 
Like, they didn't go on to huge careers, so it's not like you can look at this movie and go, oh, fuck, it's Matt Damon. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Is that how you see Matt Damon? Yeah, like, he wasn't just a smart guy. Now he's <laughs> other people. Like Matt Damon's not even British. You know, but like, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Like, you don't look yeah. back and go, fuck, he was Batman in 1997. No, no, it's people that are, it's every people, like, every yeah. person that you, you see yourself in them. You see images of children on the streets and mothers pushing baby carriages and I'm like where the hell is this going because Bob has hyped it up so much um oh, stop kicking me in the balls I, know. I got too excited but there's something about it that resonates because um even though this is before social media and I was actually surprised to know they use ATMs in it I, I made a, road, a note about that and I said were there ATMs in 1984 apparently in Britain there were I guess so yeah. um but no one's paying attention to the news, and there's all of this stuff on the background going on about the escalating war between, um, it's Russia, right? It's the Americans having it out with the Soviet Union in Iran. In Iran, yeah. So it, it's a really tense um, newscast that's playing in the background. It's building up, and interestingly enough, we watched it along a similar timeline. We watched this on May 20th, and that's kind of when it starts. It's like... Really late winter, early spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of strange. But everyone's going about their daily business not paying attention to the news. They turn it down or they're talking. Yeah. And it, it almost mirrors what goes on in our world now. It's yes. like, we're not listening. We're playing on our phones. We're turning down the TV. We're not watching yeah. cable. Like, Yeah, we're going out and having a drink. It's too depressing. Turn it off. Turn that crap yeah. off. I don't want to hear it. And by the time... And as they're doing that, we're also seeing this documentary style come in of how, because the town they're in is just outside of a NATO base. So it would be within strike. Uh, it would be a first strike target for the Soviet union. And, and it's a dock town. Like it's yeah, one of those, it's every a town blue in, collar working class, Britain. British town. Yeah. And we're, as they're dealing with their kids shit and no one paying attention to the news, we're meeting, the local town officials as they're paying attention and starting to realize that, oh, I'm not just like an alderman, as an example. In the event of a nuclear crisis, I am also... Did I just activate Siri? You totally activated Siri. (laughs) I don't know if the microphone picked that up. but. But they're finding out that, oh shit, not only am I the alderman, in the event of an emergency, I am... The, this I'm expected to go to this bunker and direct salvage operations for the fire brigade for six. Well, and there are things I never even thought about that the public doesn't know yet. They're evacuating fire trucks, pumper trucks, in because they know that this is probably imminent, um, and they're getting them out of the way. They're um, the whole time the narrative is happening. They're taking fine works of art and bringing them underground. Mm-hmm. They're making bunkers. Um, it's got a very uh, 2012 kind of vibe to it. The Roland Emmerich movie over the tectonic plane. I hated that. How can you even compare the two? Okay, one, 2012 is poetry in motion. He outran the earthquake in a limo. No, no, no. He outran the collapse of the tectonic plates. In a limo. Which is as a very powerful engine, a Winnebago, and a twin engine Santa. No, I can't. Amazing. I can't even. How Love can it. you even compare those two things? But you, because it follows a similar plot where the government behind the scenes with no one knowing is removing art, is doing all these right, things okay. to prepare for a disaster Making that the big they know ships. is coming. Yeah. 
I love 2012. So oh, I hated I 2012. No shame. So we Tw- can talk about that later. Yes, <laughs> we'll there, revisit this. We'll do later. a Roland Emmerich. Before Michael ever bade, there was Roland <laughs> Emmerich. But yes, all this shit's going on behind the scenes, and I don't know how it was for you watching it the first time, but as I'm watching it, I'm like, bitches, pay attention! There's shit going on! Well, that's how I feel about, like, now, I'm like, oh my god, we're not watching the news. We're not paying attention. We don't know what's going on. There's so much fake shit happening, and Trump's talking, and the world's coming to an end, we're all gonna die! Yeah, (laughs) this fucking pandemonium. But you also realize how easy it is to even... Back then, when everyone watched the news and everyone read the paper, yeah, how easy it is to kind of get caught up in your day to day. But by the time they all start paying attention, it's too late. Yeah, way too late, yeah. and it all of this normalcy is happening. There's there are shots of milk being delivered mm-hmm. um, curbside. There's slowly the warehouses of food are being taken under police control. Yeah. Um, People are starting to get money out. They're starting to hoard food because slowly they're paying attention, but still nobody actually believes it's going to happen. No, you think it blow, it'll blow over. It's like 99 red balloons, you know? Yeah. They think it'll just... You, you know what I'm talking about with that, right? The song? Yeah. You yeah. know that's based on a yes. little, Oh, yeah. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I got excited. I know. But what happens... And when it hits you, like, oh, I was like a friggin' hour in, it's just pandemonium. Yeah. And it's, I think even before it goes off, one of the the neat things that it really, it doesn't hammer this point home, but I think it's it's implicit to the narrative that how little the squabbling of nations have to do with the people in those nations. These countries are right. fighting the NATO pack countries going at it with the USSR on such a grand scale, but everyone's still getting up and going to work and people getting pregnant and people are getting married. Yeah, and, and they're they're buying apartments and yeah. wallpapering. And no one is stopping and going, fucking Russians, dirty fucking reds. You know, there, there are no. places in time when the political rhetoric can get so fiery and Well, there was point, that one, like, political rally where they were just talking about disarm. Yeah. The, disarm the world, the world. It's not about individuals. They're not... Um, scared of the Soviets. What yeah. they're scared of is the politicians having yes. their finger over the button. Yes, what the squabbling officials will do. Because to them, that's their schoolyard, and yeah. they have to pick and a And guess fight. what? The police shut them down. Yeah, and what does the guy start yelling out? Well, are you worried about this? What about our fucking jobs? Like, the yeah. factories are closed. What are we supposed to do? Yeah. You know, that's whatever. But once it... Once, Once the bomb goes. hits, and it's interesting because the bomb doesn't hit the city that we're talking about. No. It hits off in the distance. It hits the NATO airbase a few miles outside yeah. of town. And it's not the bomb that is the problem. It's the aftershock, the blinding light, the burning. Like, it's just, it turns into this horrific, um, it reminded me of um, William Faulkner's book, The Sound and the Fury. Not the book itself, but just the title of the book, yeah. The Sound and the Fury of nu- Nuclear War, that we can only imagine how horrible it is yeah. um, because of what we've heard um, about previous nuclear attacks in Japan. But it's just, yeah. It's- I think the the only other movie that I, because there's been lots of movies that have dealt with nuclear war, but I think the only other film that's really captured, like you said, The Sound and the Fury and the raw... The, the utter inhumane brutality of being in the blast of a nuclear bomb is Terminator 2. Uh, that scene where yeah. Sarah's dreaming and she's banging on the wire fence and the bomb goes off and you see it sweep over yeah. L.A. and up and the, the hill. Yeah, and the kids burn in the yeah. playground, except 
it that scene ends and the dream sequence ends in Terminator 2, but the suffering is so immediate in Threads where then you see the woman screaming because half of her face is burned off and their 10-year-old boy has been crushed to death by falling rock and people don't die immediately in nuclear blasts. And that's something that I learned um, quite a few years ago reading a book about um, Hiroshima is that not everybody dies immediately. Yeah, very few people actually died in the explosion in Hiroshima. Well, not it's not very few. Well, comparatively few. Comparatively. Compared to the people, more people died having their uh, their fluid in their body flash boiled by the, the flash of the bomb and then the radiation afterwards. Most movies would start either sometime after the bomb goes off yeah. or end with the bomb going yeah. off. This act one ends with the bomb going off. And now it is the cold, ugly reality of the fallout of nuclear war. Yeah. Starting with the actual fallout itself. Well, and it's so crazy who survives and who doesn't. Like, it's almost like a crapshoot that this person that was standing here survives, this person dies of radiation poisoning, but the pregnant woman survives. And that's plausible. Yeah, with the stem cells and the, the way that the baby can actually heal a mother if she's injured and was as you know. Yeah. But it's I was not injured by radioactive <laughs> yes. blast in any way. <laughs> but it's it's that that little thing, you know, like pregnant women talk about, you know, like like mom has talked about that she fucking was stoked on being pregnant, which is obviously why she did it really quickly again. Clearly. <laughs> she did it the first time. Mu- no, not for it. Less than 14 yeah. months. But she's <laughs> like, like, my hair was amazing. My uh-huh. nail, like my skin. Because that's the baby just going, yeah, here's yeah. some stem cells. Man, throw me a taco. Yeah. Like, just, you know, keep that dick out of there and get me a taco. Like, <laughs> that's what it was concerned about. So it's, you, you follow the inevitable collapse of society and mm-hmm. you're getting these that that fucking teletype is so brutal the with the information scrolling across the screen it's yeah. this very analog 80s yeah and it starts sound. telling you about what would happen in this yeah. event like um how the radioactive ash would fall and all yeah. of so it's informing you at the same time and you're then watching a documentary but you're watching it acted out in this really brutal way like they're eaten rotting sheep yeah, on the side of the road. Vomiting to death. And yeah, it's it really is. Um, it's just this picture. Let's see if I wrote any notes about what I said. I th- I stopped writing notes at a time because I just had to watch. But the, the, the suffering is so immediate, um, what you see in that second act. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say a bit about the role of women. Um, they still have shitty whiny roles. Like, there's not really one woman that isn't, like, either on fire and screaming. Well, our main character is a woman. And she's doing her her best in a bad spot. she's kind of frustrating through the whole thing, like... She's pregnant. (laughs) No. And the world is over. (laughs) I don't know. It's not like it's on hiatus. She, like, abandons her parents because she wants to go find her boyfriend. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. I just... I just thought that they still had whiny roles. Well, it's not. It's it's the. I like that she's kind of just dazed and this. Yeah, dazed is a good way to put it because she never really kind of comes back to her senses. She no. goes quickly into kind of a mother bear survival mode. But is she really caring about her fetus? No, I don't think or so. Or is she caring more about her hairbrush? But they also deal with that idea of her saying, I'm, fuck, I don't want this fucking baby. Like, they talk about abortion before the bomb goes off, which would have been very cutting edge for the time. Yeah, and then she, well. 
in I light love- of everything that happens, she goes ahead and has it, but she never even... So the third act moves into the life of the child that she has, which I think it went too far. Personally, I would have cut it off with them, the survivors walking that long walk to freedom or whatever. Yeah. I, it, I think it went way too far. It got out of control. I started drinking more beer because I was like, this is just, <laughs> when is this going to end? I can't do this anymore. But I think what the, the second chunk or the third chunk really deals with well is this. I, I, I wrote about this idea in, um, the Hanging Messiah. Okay. With the... Which is the short story that Bob has yes, written. The, uh, the first group of survivors born after a cataclysmic event. And I think the neatest part of that is the death of language. Because yeah. as education fails, there's no priority to teach these kids anything of value. So you see them... Well, they have a class Trying to... And they're watching this beat up old tape... And it's te- and it's skipping, so they're learning like kind of Nell uh, style, like <laughs> they're skipping their words, you know. And yeah, it's a me, really um, like almost shorthand English. Yeah, this return clipped. to a very primitive state, and all the while still getting these Michael Crichton style hard facts, you know. Or it's I'm, been winter for twenty years. Yeah, see like, this this where I you, think it, it went out of yeah. Winter <laughs> is not leaving. Yeah, um, it, I think it just went on too long, and I I like that more immediate. Like the immediate suffering is the thing that I thought captured me the most. Um, this fifteen years in the future, and now we've got her daughter. Everyone's um, got cataracts. Everyone's got cataracts and leukemia. And, and I mean, that clearly could be a real picture. We don't know. We've never gone that far. That would be a real, real, real fallout. But I just... Nuclear winter. Then the radioactive baby. <laughs> Which is interesting if you talk <laughs> That's about... That's where she ends it, though, with the fucking with dead body. gene mutation. So the daughter ends up um, being assaulted uh, by someone else because everybody has... Obviously, society has fallen apart. So at 16 or 14, whatever mm. it is, she she ends up becoming pregnant. Um, and the mutation of genes that has been passed down because of her exposure to radiation and her mother's, um, she has a horribly deformed baby who I don't even think survives. It doesn't. And that's where we end the That's movie. where we end. That and we had a completely hopeless. As she drops hopeless. the fetus off the bed. Yeah. A in com- horror. <laughs> a completely, which I've used that image in the original draft of Embers, the script I wrote with Mike, ended with her delivering a stillborn baby. Um, I Threads has inspired a lot of my recent work. Uh, Threads and Martyrs, actually. It's interesting because my novel also has a stillborn birth in it, um, but not because of radioactivity, even yeah. though this is a nuclear war that's being fought in my book. I just love the like the the concern you have that it goes on a little too long, and I, I I can appreciate that. Okay, but to me, I love that for two reasons. I love the the utter relentlessness of it. That no fuck you, we're not letting you go, and it hammers home the idea of mutually assured destruction. That this is the consequences of nuclear war. There's yeah. no romance. No, there's no there's winning. You don't win no. in this because supposedly, even though we have the snapshot of Europe, that it's going to affect the entire world. Yeah. It's because they give the facts, you know, like 70,000 megatons exchanged globally over the course of the war compared to the uh megaton that was discharged at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we still know the effects that um, like Chernobyl um, mm-hmm. and sorry, what was that meltdown? Fukushima yep. um, are having on the world. So 
if anything, this is an early warning that we shouldn't be playing around with nuclear yep. technology, people. <laughs> I think it's probably one of the best deterrents I've ever seen because because everything around with the end of the world has has become so romanticized. Yes, uh, we we're guilty of that with a girl in the city, but well, Walking Dead, like Walking all of Dead, that stuff. Uh, the fucking bow and arrow. What's that idiot's name? Uh, what's the Hunger, Hunger Games? Games? Yeah, like okay, these, yeah. It's all yeah. so because there'll always be a young girl to rise up and say, "No, that young girl's gonna go blind, and her kid's gonna be retarded, and then die." Yeah, well, like, we shouldn't probably use that word. That she's going to be problematic and then die. Yeah. Like that's that's the consequence. There is no beautiful dresses and ball gowns and handsome boys and no kicky bow and arrows. No, there's just. Death. And it is raw. Like, it's a, a completely raw picture of what it would be like. Yeah. And that I can appreciate, even though it went on way too long. <laughs> <laughs> From the man who later brought you Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones and Anne Heche. Which is an interesting fact. How yeah. I mean, it also follows in that vein of end of the world explosion. Yeah. Um, but what? <laughs> well, it's just one of those journeyman directors, right? The guys that have very diverse careers. You know, what did he do after that? He's done a bunch of stuff. Okay. Nothing like big, but he, I'm, I might be wrong. I haven't looked into his, his credits in a while. You know, but guys like that, they just you just made different kinds of movies. You didn't just make, you know, I follow so many directors that make typically one kind of movie. Right. So back then you just did. Yeah. BBC everything. called you up and said, oh, we need Mick. Can you fucking wreck it? Like, yeah, I'll do it. And then next <laughs> week it's it like, like, hey, <laughs> Mick, uh, Old Dench has got a dress on, and where she's going to say some Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, fuck! I'll be over. You know, at the pub. You know, with the other Judies, lots of Judies. Um, just this downtown at Abbey, uh, in Abbey. Ah, uh, no. I don't think he directed anything to do no. with downtown Abbey or Judy Dench. God, I, w- I hope he did. I really hope I'm wrong about we, this. We'd have to follow up. There's with that. someone listening right now. It's a staunch Mick Jackson supporter. Like, oi! We're going to get a phone call. Fucking colonials, you don't know nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, I think that was a pretty fun first go around. What are are your thoughts, Jack? If you had to unpack what we just did for an hour. Can I read another quote? Yo, go nuts. I like like this ending with a quote. And I found a quote in a a book, um, a post-apocalyptic Good place to find them. You didn't even let me finish. I know. It was too uh, easy. A, a book that um, followed the same vein, because I, I have this um, guilty pleasure of reading post-apocalyptic trash. And I don't mean trash in, like, it's actually garbage. It's just stuff that is pumped out all the time, especially ebooks um, that I read. Anyway, uh, this book... What book um, is this from? Or do you not want to tell people? I don't want to tell people, because it's really embarrassing. Um, Einstein's brain is... Isn't don't I can't even, um, but the the main character um, finds all of these um, relics from the past. Um, nearby stood a statue of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, as I live and breathe, Brad thought to himself. In the second century A.D., the Roman emperor had written, "Everything is interwoven; nothing of its parts are unconnected." Is there more Jackson staring at me. <laughs> but what? It's threads. Yes. Yeah, they start the movie by talking about threads and stuff. Well, and this is why I thought, like, how fitting that I would go to bed and read this book just after we had watched One threads. One smart line in the whole 
yeah, Genius. everything's in connect, interconnected, and whether that's what we're talking about on the show, um, or this particular movie, Threads, or The Girl Who Owned a City, all of these things from our past, um, our experiences, what we've been exposed to, is kind of interwoven together it's to true. make us... Tomatoes. Tomatoes. <laughs> tomatoes and potatoes. <laughs> to make us. You say tomato, I say tomato. But no, it, there's a direct through line from you bringing home a girl who owned a city to me being the kind of person years later that would be like, let's watch threats. Yeah. Like, that's, that's a direct through line, and I think that's fun. And I thought this was fun. This was super fun. Yeah. So, we're... This is kind of give you, hopefully, an idea of how we're going to be doing this. Uh, we might listen back to this and be utterly horrified. We don't know. But, I think it should be good. Uh, but 14 Months Apart is going to be uh, bi-weekly, so it'll be every two weeks. Uh, having done two year, 108 episodes of a weekly podcast, uh, it's super stressful. So Yeah, I don't think our schedules would allow no. weekly podcasts. I think bi-weekly is good. It gives us time to actually sink our teeth into the... The kind of... Uh, just like really... Uh, <laughs> I keep forgetting that people can't see us. So we do, as Barrows, we talk a lot with our hands. Yeah. Um, so the we're, entire we're time... We're natural mimers. Yeah. No, I don't like mimes. They creep me out, just like people on stilts. <laughs> what if about have, a mime on stilts? Okay, this is where stilts really get me. If they have pants over the stilts, it's just even worse. It's my biggest nightmare. <laughs> if you can see the stilts, it's not as bad. Okay. Um, right. So, I'm, no, I'm not a mime, but, um, I, yeah, I forget that people can't see us. So we're really animated. Yeah. Um, you, 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 might have, you might be able to hear, like, a, like a whooshing <laughs> sound or my chair constantly squeaking, one of the two. Or the water heater coming on. Yes. Uh, my, I, my room in Jack's basement, because that's where I currently reside. This is where the 14 Months Apart studio is located. Basement Jackie's house. It can be a little noisy. wonder when that was going to come in. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, I don't want to give it all the way up front, you know? Like, we gotta little mystery. Give, yeah. A little, little mystery. Where the fuck is he? Oh, lives in his sister's basement. Next podcast. <laughs> Oh, come on. Subscribe. It just adds to the whole ambiance of it all. So we will be back in two weeks. uh, And keeping with this theme of how we diverged on content, what we wanted to do was pick a couple of movies that we both watched young, but that we both had two completely different reactions to. Uh, and so in two weeks' time, uh, after I see it on the big screen in Toronto and 35 mil, I'm so excited, we are going to be talking about Hellraiser 3 and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Which is a movie that um, fortified my need to have romance in what I write and what I watch. And Hellraiser 3 completely... I say this with uh, with no hubris, no voice, uh, nothing. I'm not lying about this. There's there's words to make me sound smart about it. It's really dramatic, Bob. It completely changed who I was and what I do in life. That one pivotal moment. So that's what we're going to be talking about in two weeks' time. So you'll have some time to get your homework in. You can watch those wonderful movies. Coming if, soon to a basement near yeah, you. <laughs> if you're in the Toronto area, it's playing at the Review on uh, in 35 mil on June 29th, and I'll be there. So we want to thank you guys very much for joining us. Thank and you. And we will talk to you next time. And remember, a lot can change in 14 months. <laughs>